It's episode 378 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about Monster Kid Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and we are kicking off this week's episode with a song from the band The Bamboogie Injections. They are a surf band based out of Moscow, Russia, and the song is Surfogenic Fugue. It's off their album Take It that just came out last month. It's a great album. Go check them out by looking up bamboogieinjections.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook or follow the link in the show notes over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. Check them out when you're done listening to this week's episode. Pretty much a return to form here on Monster Kid Radio. I've had a blast reflecting on and talking about Monster Bash for the past two weeks. And honestly, I still have some recordings from the show mostly Q&As and that sort of thing. But you know what? I've missed doing a quote-unquote regular episode of Monster Kid Radio, and that's what we're going to get this week. I reached out to not one, but two different people who've been on the show in the past to talk about a movie from 1945 called The Body Snatcher, starring my man, Bela Lugosi, and my other man, Boris Karloff. Not necessarily in that order. You'll hear the conversation and know a little bit more about what we're talking about. The Body Snatcher is a Val Luton film, and man, it's a good one. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get to that, we have some business we need to get to, because while I was at Monster Bash, Jeff Pollier continued to call in reports from Weird Wednesday at the Joy Cinema here in the Portland, Oregon area, specifically in Tigard, Oregon. I haven't had a chance to go to Weird Wednesday in a little while, but Jeff keeps going and keeps calling in reports. So we've not just got one, but two Weird Wednesday reports from Jeff coming up in this week's episode as well. Plus, my wife Brenda is going to join me at the end of the show to go over some feedback. Before I get to all that, just a heads up. My wife did record two of Michael Dodd's Monster Collectibles segments. However, I can't find them right now. They are either in the digital can somewhere or the digital trash can, unfortunately. Either way, I still have the text. And by next week, you'll have another installment of the Monster Collectible segment. So that's coming up next week. This week, though, we've got the Body Snatcher. We've got Weird Wednesday reports. We've got feedback. That's all coming up right after this. centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend, the legend of the cat people, women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Val. Just a minute ago, it was open. 
o'clock. Leave, Mr. Hayden. Hello, this is Rod Barnett, the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. Ah, thank you. I've been standing there for centuries. <laughs> yes, I suppose it seemed... Why, it's raining, but you're not wet. No, I'm not, am I? Uh, where are you coming from? I was watching a wonderfully terrifying double feature movie. I was a teenage Frankenstein in Blood of Dracula. Oh? Professor Frankenstein created a teenage monster to bring havoc and terror to all who meet him. But he left a few parts out, particularly in the poor lad's face. Uh, may we change and the And the vampire in Blood of Dracula, quite unfriendly except when hungry, than any friend will do for a few ghastly moments. Please, I... Oh, here's where I must leave you. But there's nothing here but an old cemetery. Yes, I know. I want to meet some old friends here. After you see I was a teenage Frankenstein and Blood of Dracula, you might drop back here. We'll discuss the pictures to some length. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll do that! <laughs> this is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, we've got two for one this time. Well, is it three because I'm the third? We've got two people on the Skype line today. We're going to be talking about a film that I really, really enjoy. I'm going to be talking with some people that I really enjoy speaking with. You've heard them on the show before. First, to my virtual left, he is one half of the Supermates podcast, which is one of the best geek comic book podcasts around every October. He does the house of Franklin Stein and it's amazing. Chris Franklin, welcome back to monster kid radio. Hey Derek. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. And then to my virtual right, which 
Actually, I don't know if that's true because I'm here in Portland and he's wherever he's at. And anyway, I've got Jim Beard on the line. He is an author. He is an amazing author. Uh, he is the leading force behind books like Quest for the Space Gods, which I still owe him a review for. And the recently released The Joy of Joe, Memories of America's Movable Fighting Man from Today's Grown-Up Kids. Jim Beard, welcome back to MKR. Hey, thanks a lot. And, and you know, there, I couldn't possibly top Frankenstein. <laughs> that i i'm just throwing in the towel on that that's just incredible <laughs> well you you take you take what kids called you and you know picked on you about and then you make it into something that's what you do right oh that's yeah. if that's not you know lemonade from lemons i don't know what is you took that you know and wore it as a badge of honor fantastic that's right. <laughs> Man, I, I love that. I wish I would have had a name like that that kids called me growing up. And my last name is spelled K-O-C-H. Do with that what you will. Hey, but, uh, hey try yeah. growing up with the name Beard. <laughs> Anything that kids can grab onto it, you know, and make something of, you know, weird beard, which, you know, today I wear that as a badge of honor and, and uh, mustache, you know, so... Uh, yeah, t- talk to me about names. Well, none of us are named Toddy, so yeah. that, I think maybe that's... Because <laughs> if we were, we would never get rid of you. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Uh, of course, I'm referring to, and, and people who have listened to the beginning of the show and the intro and all that know that we're talking about a 1945 film directed by Robert Wise, which I had forgotten he had directed this until I sat down to watch this movie again, yeah. because I associate this film with Val Luton, The Body Snatcher. Wow, what a cool film, and and one of the best Karloff performances, period. Actually, Jim, when we had you on the show before, mm. when we talked about Karloff, you mentioned this as being your favorite, your the best Karloff performance. Yeah, it really is, and, and I know that seems a little heretical, you know, but uh, we were talking before, and Chris absolutely is on board with, with that mm-hmm. one, too. You have your Frankenstein monster, and that's the popular choice. But I think if people really sat down and weighed this against his other films, I think that they they might start to see our point. Yeah, I, I think part of it, too, is it, here, I mean, obviously the monster talked in Bride of Frankenstein, but Karloff gets to use his voice in this movie. And it's, Absolutely. He, and it's, it's like he uses every tool in his acting toolbox in this movie. I think that's yeah. one reason it puts it over the Frankenstein performances. There's an interview that he did around this time. And this might also be part of it that he really sparked to this project is that he was coming off of house of Frankenstein. (laughs) 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 I almost said it. (laughs) You know, he's coming off of house of Frankenstein and he, he said that's that monster rally stuff was just done to death as far as he was concerned. And, and, and he actually said that Val Luton gave him his soul back. Mm -hmm. What an incredible statement. So I think that there's something about that. He might've seen this as sort of resuscitating, you know, his uh, interest in, in making movies. Right. And it's, you know, he probably knew that, at that point, he's he's going to get horror roles. So to get a horror role that is so meaty and that he can sink his teeth into was, I'm sure that's, you know, exactly. That's it's like, oh, yeah. thank goodness. <laughs> hey, I got a question for you both since you and you just said it. Is this a horror film or is it a thriller? Mm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know it's, a- it's early for, for Derek, so maybe I blew his mind there. I, 
It's a thriller, and the last scene is a, a horror film. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> it, it actually does, and and it also comes down to how you interpret that last scene, too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's tough because you know we always associate Val Luton with horror movies, horror movies. But if you really look at them objectively, mm-hmm. I mean, sure they're scary, but they don't have a lot of the uh, the monster movie tropes of the '40s. A lot of times, like Cat People, for example, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, is that a horror movie? I Well, I, I, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Um, it's well, it's a good film either way. I mean, it's a fantastic movie. But, yeah, I don't know how you would label it if you really were to look at it objectively. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, horror involves the supernatural. There's got to be some okay. fantastical supernatural aspect to it for, or to dip over and then become horror. So, you know, you kind of go back and forth uh, on this one. You know, how much is in Toddy's mind? What is it that's really happening? And I suspect that that Karloff may have seen this as more of a thriller and, again, trying to get away from horror somewhat. Yeah, what he, he liked to call them terror roles, didn't they? Terror, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah. okay, I, I mean, this all comes down to your definitions, but, yeah, you know, is terror, does that mean thriller? <laughs> or does that mean... <laughs> You know, again, I, I always have stuck with horror has to have at least some one supernatural aspect where something cannot be explained with science. I mean, even uh, I walked with a zombie, you know, the zombies in that can be explained by loose science, I suppose, <laughs> you know, or, or or is it mysticism? Hard to say. Well, and like Isle of the Dead that was filmed around the same time as this, like, partially filmed before and partially filmed after it's definitely more of a thriller really but that's there's horror trappings there obviously considering that Karloff and Henry Danielle were in a lot of episodes of thriller together then maybe we should just call it a thriller I don't <laughs> okay I'm all I'm all for that it's a terror thriller terror thriller. There, there there we go there we go when we had this conversation briefly about this film last time, Jim. Was it during a game of the Classic Five when we were doing the the questions? Yes, is that yeah, how it yes, came it up? was. Because okay. I think the question was, <laughs> you know, what is Karlov's greatest role? And I went, hmm, body snatcher. <laughs> <laughs> and you went, what? I know, right? Well, it's the first time I had heard that yeah. that, a- that answer to that question. Well, speaking of the Classic Five, I've got some cards here. I've got some questions. Let's kick this episode off with a round of the Classic Five. What do you guys think? Okay. I studied for it this time. Oh, did you now? <laughs> yeah, I swore that you would never, ever take me unawares again. Uh, I, I stayed out partying and didn't study. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, hey. Oh. Chris is good thing there are no kid. wrong answers. Oh, okay. And good thing there are no wrong answers here. For listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards here with this or that, yes or no style questions. They're all about classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. It's a great way to start conversations with fellow monster kids. You guys ready to play the Classic Five? Yes. All right. Card in question number one. What Hammer film character was the best dresser? Wow. That's a good one. Yeah, it, re- it, it, uh, it really is. Um, the main vampire in, in Brides of Dracula. Mm. Ooh, okay. What? The David Peel character. Baron Meister. Yeah. Baron Meister, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think. Uh, he was pretty flashy. Yes, he was. <laughs> mm, I'm thinking way too hard about this. I'm going to go with Peter Cushing as Captain Clegg. He was pretty... He was pretty uh, stylish in that film you know he, he looked like the 
the vicar who had it going on in that film. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with him. Derek, <laughs> Derek, I like this guy. Good choice. The vicar who the vicar who had it going on. That's not. That's great. <laughs> I love it. Right on. <laughs> okay, uh, card number two. Fritz or Igor? Igor. Huh. I got to go with Igor because it's Lugosi. He owns it. It's definitely Igor. That's Lugosi's greatest role. It's so good. Mm-hmm. So good. All right, card number three. Bert I. Gordon or Roger Corman? Roger Corman. I can appreciate both, but Roger Corman's he's got the schlocky stuff, but then the legit, more legit post stuff too, so I'm going to go with Corman. Mm. I'm going to go with Gordon. Oh, yeah? Yeah, just to... Just to be contrary. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm going for pure schlock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in terms of schlock, Gordon's got it going on. <laughs> this is true. Mr. Big did, um, yeah, never really had any. Uh, <laughs> like Corman tried to do the serious film every once in a while. I don't know if, if Gordon ever really did, did he? They were all kind of monster eh. movies and such. Eh. Yeah. Okay, card number four. What is your favorite Vincent Price film? Oh, boy. These are tough ones today. Yeah, uh, Abominable Dr. Fives. What lovely music for a murder. Or two. Or three. Or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, Doctor. I am already dead. Yeah, yeah. I think it's got to be. Uh, I was going to say that. I was fighting back and forth, but I'm going to say The Haunted Palace. You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. The Haunted Palace. You, who find a kind of macabre joyousness in the horrifying, will enjoy yourselves as in ecstasy in The Haunted Palace. Starring Vincent Price, a being who lived and died and lives again. I'll not have my fill of revenge until this village is a graveyard. That one kind of knocked me upside the head. I wasn't expecting what it was when I watched it, and I was like, wow, this is... Great. <laughs> I'll give it a runner-up because I'm actually reading I Am Legend right now, the original novel. So uh, Last Man on Earth, I'll give a runner-up to. Oh, that's good, too. Oh, I love that movie. Too many Vincent Price movies to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all good. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because of him. Right. Yeah. He's pretty fantastic. All right, final card, card number five. Oh, it's a kaiju card. Who is your favorite Godzilla foe? For me, that's easy. It's it's Mecha Godzilla. Oh yeah, I was gonna say that too. So yeah, Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't get a chance to see Ready Player One in the theaters, but uh, I understand that Mecha Godzilla is is in there prominently for a little bit, and I huh. that's what I hear. So I, you know, any. Yeah, I love Mechagodzilla too. So I mean, I've got a Mechagodzilla vinyl bank that I have on my desk at work because it's just awesome. So <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you guys. All right, well, that's the Classic Five. How do you guys feel? Nah, I'm doing great. <laughs> right on. 
Ah, Philip, Philip, pretty good. Philip, pretty good. You and I should work together. You mean we would sell the bodies to the doctors together? To dig them up, there'll be no digging. The kirkyards are too well guarded. We will, so to speak, burk them. I'm sure of that. I'm sure, and I mean to report it. It's like Burke and Hare all over again. That is grave robbing is one thing, but this is murder. You ordered this subject, received it here, and paid for it. That makes you a party to murder. You must leave this house. I can't do that. You hurt McFarlane. Save yourself, Master Fetters. Look at McFarlane. Gray, I must be rid of you. You become a cancer, a malignant, evil cancer, rotting my mind. Never get rid of me, Tony. The Body Snatcher 45, uh, Val Luton, I mean, the man was a master uh, storyteller as far as I'm concerned. I know he never really got the direction credit, which is fine, uh, but as a storyteller, man, this guy knocked it out of the park more times than not. And to have an opportunity to work with Karloff and a little bit of Lugosi, what a, what a fantastic film. Is this the first time that Luton and Karloff worked together? I think they were working, like, I think they, uh, the commentary track on the DVD, they were working on Isle of the Dead, and Karloff had uh, back problems, uh, probably stemming from the original Frankenstein when he's, he's yep, carrying yeah. Colin Clive around. They had to stop production on that, and I don't know particularly why they had to stop production on that one and then picked up the body snatcher, but they did. So technically, I don't I don't know which one you count as the first. I guess Isle of the Dead was they started on first. So okay, yeah. You know how many other producers have the influence over the of the films like he did that we stand back and we we almost say that he directed them. You, Not very you know. many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what a what a fascinating uh, guy and uh, a fascinating legacy of, of films that he left behind that, you know, we credit him for the look. I think a lot of that is, you know, Derek, you said storyteller, and I'll agree with that. But it's, you know, that particular look, you know, a Val Luton film when you see it. Oh, sure. You know, it made me wonder, like, what he was like to work with from a director's standpoint and, and how, you know, how much... A director felt that he had to do certain things in Luton's direction. But it's incredible that this film is Robert Wise. You know, I look back over all the different films that I love through the years and how many of them (laughs) are Robert Wise. And and that that this is another one that I can, you know, lump in with that one is is great for me. Yeah, this is taking nothing away from Robert Wise. Yeah, I mean, no. the, the oh. films that he did. And, and this is not the first time he worked with Val Luton. He directed The Curse of the Cat People as well. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Robert Wise, The Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, just hands down, classic yeah. science fiction film of the 50s. I mean, one of the most iconic, I feel like, sci-fi films of the 50s. Sounds music. Yeah. You know, then he goes and directs Sound of Music. <laughs> Maybe he's all over the map, and it's great, his diversity, you know, in, in his output. Yeah. Man, and he kicked off the Star Trek films. I mean, he did the motion picture, which I feel is an underrated film these days. And yeah. just, he did so much. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's really bringing his A-game when it comes to this film, even though it's pretty early in his directorial career. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to a podcast that I've been in love with again lately called The Secret History of Hollywood. Uh, what 
this podcast does is this long form audio documentary style storytelling and they have or the producer there is doing or has done a series on Val Luton and I just started listening to it so I'm not too far along into the project uh, or into the podcast but I'm learning a little bit about Val Luton's history and, and where he came from and, and his background and the guy appears to have been just a born storyteller mm. This comes from his background as a, as an immigrant growing up with uh, Russian folklore and retelling these stories and then reading four novels in one sitting and, and performing sometimes inappropriately in school and, <laughs> and, and, and being a novelist and, and trying to write for newspapers but getting bored with the news and just making up stories and, and writing about them and getting fired for it. Mm. Just <laughs> – um, wow. You know, just his background as a writer alone just seems fascinating. And I can't wait to get to the part of the podcast where we talk about how he got involved with Hollywood. But, man, uh, the stuff that he did and the stuff he's responsible for. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, for that podcast. I highly recommend it. It'll, it'll blow your mind. As far as Val Luton films go, I, I don't know much about the guy, unfortunately. I know there have been some documentaries about his films, but I, I don't know much about him. Yeah. Yeah. But but knowing his background growing up with like the Russian folklores and these stories and things like that, I can kind of see now some of a maybe a shadowy fairy tale-ness to a lot of his work. Yeah. And I, I can see that here for sure. I would love to know how it was that he gravitated towards this type of film. You know, why today we consider these terror thrillers uh, or horror <laughs> films as the main course uh, for him, what in him let, led him to want to focus on, on this sort of thing? Because he's so good at it. Right? Oh, yeah. He's yeah. amazing. I mean, my first Val Luton film was uh, I Walked With a Zombie, just because of the zombie thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was my first. What were your guys' first uh, Val Luton's experiences? I actually think the first one I saw was The Body Snatcher, which I caught on TCM. That's probably been about 15 years ago now. Uh, it, it came on right after The Wolfman uh, on a Halloween night. So I watched this huh. on Halloween night, so it was great. And uh, that was kind of my introduction to him. And then and then I just happened to be, I think it was at like a Big Lots or something. They had like the Val Luton collection, like DVDs, uh, two movies per DVD. And I just like gobbled them up and bought them, <laughs> you know, uh, including The Body Snatcher. So, yeah, that was that was kind of my, it, it piqued my interest definitely right off the bat. I saw a bunch of them kind of all around the same time. Um, I wasn't overly familiar with him, and my wife's uh, been a huge fan of I Walk With a Zombie. And I remember she sat me down to watch that one, and, and then I really agreed with her uh, about it. And I think that might have been my first one. I think I saw Curse of the Cat People before Cat People, and, and honestly, I think it's the better film. Um, and, and then, you know, somewhere in that mix, uh, a body snatcher and, you know, at that point it was Val Luton, where have you been all my life? <laughs> just, the, the, just the, the, you know, Derek, I think you hit upon it when you said fairy tale, that sense of not so much in body snatcher, but in the other ones, definitely that, that sense of these people are living in a fairy tale a fanciful world and and that's so much because of that Val Luton feel and, and atmosphere uh, I'm thinking of 
Curse of the Cat people with the with the walking through the the forest or through the trees, you know, you get a sense of the actual the air, the atmosphere, and the and the glow and and all of that. And you know, that's how I I think of this guy and his films. Last year, I had an opportunity to see uh, the Leopard Man on the big screen wow. here at uh, at the mm. Art Museum, and uh, even a movie like that, which. You know, it, it takes place in a sleepy little New Mexico town, but it still has this, this kind of fairy. T- you feel it. Yeah. It, it, it you you smell the desert around them. You you feel the heat and the the sand and everything when you're watching something like this. I don't know if it's because of the way he insisted shadows be used in the films, which I assume that was him because he's so associated with it. Yeah. But the way the shadows are used and the lighting is used in his movies, it is so good and i feel like the body snatcher has a lot of that too the shots of uh <laughs> Karloff following the uh, the street singer oh yeah around oh. the corner or or uh yeah yeah just well anything with Karloff really you know whenever he's doing any of his dastardly stuff there's always shadows around him and it's fantastic so good this isn't necessarily the first period film he did but i, I feel like Val Luton should have made more period films because he was good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. You know what else I'll give him credit for is the use of children in films <laughs> because I generally, as a rule, hate children in films. <laughs> um, and I don't walk away from Curse of the Cat People or Body Snatcher and, and hating the children. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> I'm good with respect for for Derek. I I won't go into the whole Donnie Dunnigan thing again. (laughs) (laughs) See, I couldn't tell if you were making a joke or not, talking about walking away, quote unquote, from this film, talking about the kid. Oh, just because. (laughs) Wow. You know, I couldn't. No, I was not. (laughs) No, I was not. The little girl in this is, you know, is very, very good. And mm-hmm. um, not not annoying at all. And, and I'm going to go back to like I said. I'm going to give him credit for the uh, the daring use of children, but but and not <laughs> not have them come off as as parts <laughs> of the film you wish you could edit out. <laughs> this was good practice for Robert Weiss because he's going to direct the Sound of Music, as you yeah. said. He's going to have a whole <laughs> gaggle of Von Trapp children to work with, right? So. Boy, that is, that's a fantastic <laughs> point. That is yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Wow, Henry Henry Danielle, he might be a great doctor, but what a terrible bedside manner that man! (laughs) He's walking this line between okay, he's a great doctor, he's a teacher. I mean, we're we're supposed to you know respect him and be endeared to him, but he really is dismissive of this little girl, and even admits later to Mister Fettis, I guess that. Yeah, I was just saying that because we were over drinks, you know. That I mean, he admits to lying to him about stuff. Like, come on, yeah. I. Yeah. Well, well, you're a jerk, but you're the hero. But you're a jerk, but you're a good guy. I don't know. Henry Danielle's a very interesting actor, and his role in this film is is really fascinating because he is walking that line between being a very unlikable jerk, and then he gets these moments where you do feel sympathy for him when he's kind of down and out. And it's after the surgery fails. And he has that wonderful scene with Karloff in the bar. Oh, so good. And he does the thing where he tries to explain it. 
And I love that moment because he's connecting with Gray finally, or, or you might see some sort of glimmer of, of maybe they had this more even relationship at, at one point. And Karloff is re- retaining his sarcasm. Like he, he's like, uh, well, I never had it explained to me, you know, like this before or by such a, a, a learned person, you know, but I, I love that because Toddy's getting down into his true profession and, and the frustration that he feels when he's like, I did this and I did this and you put it together and it should work, but it didn't. You know, you actually do feel some sympathy for him, even though, yeah, he's got the worst bedside, you know, manner of the 1800s. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great scene, too, because you really do get the feeling that, you know, McFarlane is a great doctor. He's probably a great teacher. The students all seem to admire him and and learn a lot from him, you know, but it's that relationship, that history is just constantly just eating away at him. And then Mm. here's Gray, who pops up, uh, you know, periodically to just remind him, oh, don't forget, Toddy, the things we did. You know, Mm. it's they both sell it. I mean, it's just, uh, it's such a great piece between two great actors. It's fantastic. Have either one of you read the original short story? I have, yeah. Okay. I have not, unfortunately. Uh, I'm assuming you have, Jim? I have not, no. Oh, Um, okay. You know, it's actually on my list. I'm... Slowly but surely trying to hit some original source material for films that I love. I just read the original short story of The Birds, for example. Oh, wow. And that was really an enriching, because it's so different from the Hitchcock film. And I love the Hitchcock film, but it was kind of eye-opening. So this is, this is one of those ones that's, that's, that's on my list to, you know, to read. And I think this is actually going to uh, prod me into getting to it sooner uh, than later. So, hey, well, Chris, how close is the movie to the story? Then. Well, there's several liberties that I have to say that I, I prefer the movie because the movie fleshes things out quite a okay. bit. Uh, we're introduced to, if you want me to spoil it for you. Uh, well, <laughs> don't spoil the end. I, I, mean, spoil the I end. mean, you know, in, in general, it, it's the same story, would you say? Uh, it, it is, but uh, the relationship between Fetty's and McFarland's different. They seem to be, although Toddy, McFarland is a little older than than Fetty's. Uh, he's already a doctor, but they're both uh, studying at the school. And oh. the doctor, Dr. Knox, is known as Dr. K in the story because apparently uh, Robert Louis Stevenson didn't want to get in trouble with the real Dr. Knox who was still living. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, so he's called Dr. K uh, mm. throughout the story. And uh, – Huh. The, the way the story begins is, is strange because you get an encounter with McFarlane and Fetty's years later. So that tells you that the this, this story is a little bit different. It, it's not even so much a flashback. It's basically other people witness their encounter and that they have words for each other. And they basically try to figure out what the deal was between these two. And uh, the story is told by one guy who basically says this is what happened. So you don't even – he's kind of an unreliable narrator – he might just be filling in the blanks of the story. And the biggest change is that Gray, while he is a tormentor of McFarlane, he really only has like one scene. And you're not really sure if he was connected to the Resurrection Man job or not. Uh, he could be, but he's not the guy that's dropping the bodies off. Wow. Uh, so they really flesh the wow. part. 
expression, flesh the story uh, yeah. out. And, uh, wow! If, from that, from that, we get Karloff's greatest role. Yes, I mean, so wow. this a lot of this was uh, a Luton and uh, the other screenwriter like going in and and really crafting a role for for Karloff. Yeah, so I think there's huh. even a little thing that uh, if you if you listen to the commentary track, Steve Haberman uh, does a commentary track. And he talks about how Luton sent a memo that says, "I think we can take this." minimal character of gray and expand it for Karloff. So they basically <laughs> took that scene and just blew it up and, and mm. gave Karloff, like you said, his, his greatest role or one of his greatest roles. If you're not you and me. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to go back to that scene in the bar where, where uh, McFarlane and he are talking. That is just like the standout. If you were to point somebody to this film and say, see, this is great acting. Mm-hmm. I would go straight to that sequence because it, it's just so good. Plus Dr. McFarlane is talking about how he doesn't understand how putting the body back together didn't make the girl walk. And if anybody's going to understand that you can't just put a body together by making the parts go in the right spot, it's going to be Karloff. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, well so, played. I mean, well played. <laughs> So I, I love when he takes the two glasses and he puts them together and I put the piece of the spine together like this and yeah. Karloff just sweeps it onto the floor. It's just so yeah. good. And in Karloff's role in this, I mean, even he has a chance to to go a little bit back and forth. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, he's friendly to the kid. He's like, you know, look, your horse, my horse is going to be your friend. And yep. I mean, he's really a warm guy until yep. you realize what his side hustle is. And then- <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's in a way it's that same thing with uh, McFarland. you know, it, it, he's a jerk, but there's a moments of sympathy. He is an incredible doctor. When he gets frustrated, you, your heart kind of goes out to him a little bit. And yeah, that's, it's a harsh moment with gray and the kid, because you want to hate gray and you do i i guess he's one of these you know you love to hate him kind of a thing and he has been wronged in a way you you know you you must admit that uh he's a nasty character but you know mcfarland's pretty harsh with him and you know in some ways he has been wronged so your sympathies kind of start to fly all over the place in this film hey why not you know, the, the, the fact that he's nice to the girl, that little girl, that he's nice to his horse, to his cat. And then, you know, when Fetty's comes by and says, you know, can you get me a body? And, of course, he's got that wonderful smile. Karloff smiles so much in this movie. And, oh, God, yeah. And, and, he go, and he goes from that smile when, when he's talking to Fetty's. When Fetty's leaves, he hears the singer. And when he walks through the door, he looks like he's doing the Frankenstein monster walk. It almost looks like he's lumbering toward the door and in the heavy shadows you know he's got that horrible look you know what he's going to do and then he tells his horse it's like like we're going to have to go out again I, i've got bad news you know and so he's so gentle toward his horse and his cat but then he's going to go murder this innocent girl it's just he's such a complex <laughs> character yeah. and, and really that's, that's the word yeah it, it and it's that's the and honestly you didn't see that a lot in the 1940s you know lots of films were black and white you know they really were and so <laughs> not just because the way they were filmed yeah. but this character of gray has got lots of shades of gray you know? yep. <laughs> so, he's the original 50 shades of gray right no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, See, I'm, it's, it's still early for me here but i was trying real hard to figure out how to okay how do we make a 50 shades of gray? okay here we go how do we make that joke jim thank you 
Thank you. Hey, I got you, man. <laughs> I got your back on this one. Yeah, he's he's Fifty Shades of Grey in the middle of a black and white movie. <laughs> That's something, too, that I associate with Val Luton films, that a lot of the characters seem to have more than just a couple of dimensions to them. And that makes me love this movie. You know, just talking to you guys, I'm starting to love this movie even more and more. I mean, I liked it a lot. Mm. And I think I made this comment uh, to some people when I saw The Leopard Man last year that every time I see a Val Luton film, that movie becomes my favorite Val Luton film. Just <laughs> because they're all so great. When you mentioned Leopard Man before, I meant to say to anybody out there in, in your audience... If you have never watched a Val Luton film before, don't be put off by the titles. No. I give him credit for retaining those titles. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if it was his idea or it was just the studio. Didn't the studio actually say to him, like, okay, make a movie called I Walk With a Zombie? <laughs> like, you're stuck with this title. You have to do something with it. I think there's a story, something, something like that. But, yeah, don't be put off by any of these sort of pot boiling over uh, type of uh you know pulpy you know z movie titles you know just dive right in to the bubbling pot of of Val Luton and and don't worry about the titles he was told okay these are the titles you get now go make a film because obviously you know the studios RKO they want to make a buck you yeah. know they're in a business you know so <laughs> by having a title like the leopard man the yeah. cat people the ghost ship you know you're, you're going to draw people to the theater with that and then just go from I mean, the titles are fantastic yeah, and, and then um, he turns around and makes art films yeah right <laughs> basically <laughs> this year, you know the suits going Luton what you gave us another art film stop right it. stop being so clever it's like it's like somebody taking the Saw franchise and making an art film with that title, you know, or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're great titles, though. I mean, and they've led to some amazing looking movie posters as well. But, man, the movies are so much more deep than the titles would might have you believe. The Leopard Man is, man, I'm going to harp on that one a lot because I, before this one, that was the last one I watched. So, therefore, that was my last favorite Val Luton film. Uh, I've never seen um, it. Really? Oh, man, I love that movie so much. Yeah, that's one I haven't seen either, so I'm going to forget on it. I, I dig it quite a bit. But right now, I think The Body Snatcher is my favorite Val Luton film, just because that's how that works. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, bl- you, you blow with the wind, man. Hey, when it comes to Val Luton, it's hard not to, man. Yeah. These movies are great. Yeah, They're so good. Now, this is a wonderful performance for Karloff. But it's also got my man Lugosi in it. And I'm a huge Bela Lugosi fan. This is the last time the two of them appeared in a film together. I love Lugosi so much. And I know he got a raw deal a lot Mm. post-Dracula. And I feel like this is another one of those movies where he was kind of saddled with a less than spectacular role. He does great with what he's given. Mm. But he's in the movie for, what, a total of seven minutes? it's, it's, It's pretty short. Yeah. He's the 800-pound Hungarian gorilla in, in, the, in the room. <laughs> yeah. He does a great job with what he's given. Uh, you know, the character of Joseph, he plays it like a character actor would. He doesn't have a lot of depth. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it funny how we, we say that over and over with Lugosi? Well, he, he did what he could with what he had. That's true, though, but it, though. But, I it's, mean, but it is true, and I think it's an incredible part of his legacy is that he, no matter what it was, no matter what he was handed, he gave it 
150, 90% with such a tiny role in this one, you know, he didn't have a whole lot, but it's still a memorable scene. It's funny that my understanding was they, they knew that I think it was Jack Gross who had come from Universal. that was the executive producer. He was the one that came up with the idea of doing car, having Karloff. And, you know, I think at first Val Luton was a little, oh, I don't, I don't really like those Universal monster movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and then he met Karloff and found out that, oh, you know, Karloff's a real, you know, sophisticated uh, guy. He's a serious actor. And then they suggested, well, let's have Lugosi and Karloff put them back together again. And and so they crafted a role for Lugosi. But it's kind of a shame that they didn't like look at. We talked about Igor earlier that they didn't look at Igor and say, let's give Lugosi this crafty character. That's uh, Joseph Lugosi's character is just smart enough to get himself into trouble by trying to blackmail Karloff's gray. You know, it's like if he was a, a Igor type, then it might have been a little more interesting and given more to chew on and a lot yeah. of like a nice conflict. That's like the one thing about this movie. The more I think about it, I'm like, it's great Lugosi's in it. He's great with what he does, but they kind of waste Lugosi in a way. You know, it's it, I, and maybe that would have thrown the Karloff. Henry Daniel dynamic off, but, but but that is the story of his, his post Dracula career is as sad as that is. He he is, you know, it's, and why after Igor that more people, more places, more studios, you know, didn't say, gosh, we got to give him more, you know, roles like that. But I think a lot of that was Bella himself, he was his own worst enemy. Derek, you going to fight me on that one? or No, I'm not. I, I feel like Lugosi was a professional. He was yeah. a very good actor. He took every role that he did very seriously. Yeah. But by not, for right or wrong, acclimating a little bit more to the American yeah. culture and such, he forever was going to be marked as like an outsider type yep. performer and character. Yep. And whether that's fair or not, you know, we can debate forever, but yep. he's always going to be that kind of alien, this outsider type, and that's going to make it harder to put him in a more uh, leading man kind of role, which I know for a long time, that's what he wanted. He wanted to be the Clark Gable. He wanted to be that dashing. And and he had the looks for it when he was younger, so he could have, but he just always had that that difficulty kind of assimilating yep. A little bit that that Karloff embraced, you know, fully because he knew that meant work and he could have a job and and I don't know. There's just something different there about the way they they kind of pursued their careers. I think Lugosi did some amazing work, especially if you look at his some of his non Dracula work. The Black Cat is one of my absolute favorite Karloff Lugosi films, and mm. just to see those two together should sparkle. But in this one. Now, I've read and I've heard, and I don't know how true this is because it, it seems to fly in the face of everything else that I've heard about Karloff, that Karloff did not want Lugosi upstaging him in this film. Hmm. And I don't know how accurate that is, if that's apocryphal or not. Boy, that doesn't sound right. Right. Yeah, I didn't think that either. Plus, I've read a few things that director didn't like working with Karloff because Karloff was very you know, actors' rights, and, you know, I'm only going to come in and work his hours and that sort of thing, mm. and compared what he would do on set to what, what Henry Danielle would do, which was all in, you know, I'm here to shoot whatever you need me to shoot, not going to complain about it, not going to demand tea time, not going to demand breaks, you know, that sort of thing. And, I, and I, again, that, that flies in the face with everything else I've heard about Karloff, 
that he was not like that. So I don't know where any of that came from. Had either one of you stumbled across this while loving this film? I, I read that, what you read. It seemed like all that was written by somebody who's a big Lugosi fan and not a Karloff fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and I'm a, I'm a fan hey. of both. As funny, and we're laughing about it as it is, though, horror history, you know, has either been written by Karloff fans or Lugosi fans, you know? True. I yeah. mean, divide it right down the middle, and, and the story, you know, swings both ways. Um, and, and the truth of it is, as far as I know, they, they did not hate each other. Lugosi was known to, for saying complimentary things about Karloff. That, that whole, unfortunately, that Ed Wood movie has really skewed perception to yeah. uh, to out you know people more or less outside of this fandom with playing up that you know scene where he goes off on Karloff, which, it, it, as far as I know, didn't really happen or didn't happen like that. Lugosi was not known to swear for what for, like that for one thing, but. It's just a sad thing that we're we're still stuck with to this day. And I, I want to go back to what Lugosi would do for a role and, and get very little credit for it. The indignities that he suffers in Body Snatchers right. is just amazing. And not just the immersion in the barrel thing. <laughs> But I, which is a creepy image, by the way, when they, they see him and that's like, my God, hey, whatever the guy wow. go through to create that scene, all I'm all for it. But I'm talking going back to a scene with Karloff in Gray's apartment, the indignity of when Karloff has to put his hand over Lugosi's face and then take him to the floor. There's a lot of physicality there between those two you can't if they hated each other i mean may, i don't know maybe that was good for carl <laughs> but, but you know i don't know but it's you know what no matter what lugosi's feelings were there's the mark of a true professional he's already just a bit player in this film and then he's up against Karloff in the scene, and he's sort of holding his own for the most part, but they have to go in for that physical struggle. And and what Lugosi goes through, to, you know, to have Karloff's hands, which really, what, they're about like two feet long, you know, yeah. his hands are immense. <laughs> and, to put, you know, he puts it over Lugosi's face. Lugosi's no spring chicken here, you know, either. And, and the whole taking him down to the floor uh, and, and killing him, it, it, it's... It's an incredible scene. I give them both credit, but I really give Lugosi a lot of credit for, you know, just jumping in and doing it. So strange that Lugosi is second build in this movie. It's like, yeah. you know, it's even worse that they traded on his name but still wouldn't give him the the meaty role. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you are no, 100% right. It's it's mm -hmm. ridiculous that situation. It's we don't respect you. We don't care anything really about you. We're going to throw you a couple bucks. But, oh, hey, we're going to second bill you. Right. Like, you either love this guy or you hate this guy, you know? Yeah. Stop futzing around with him and and either give him a meaty role like he deserves or, or stop, as you just said, trading on his name. Right. You know, and, and I've talked about this on the show before, too, that even even now, it's like Universal doesn't know what to do with Lugosi's image and all that. And I know some of that has to do with Lugosi Jr. being a lawyer and, and yeah. 
you know, the image rights. But depending on where Universal and the Lugosi family is in their relationship, you can tell whenever Universal puts out a, a book about the Universal monsters. If Lugosi's on the cover, they're getting along. If it's Carradine, they're not. Right. So you can kind of tell. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I was going to say, what I love about this scene uh, where Joseph and, and Gray have their final meeting and, and Gray is going to Burke him, uh, which mm. I love, by the way, that Burke has become a verb. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, I lo- what I like about this scene is that pretty much all the deaths up until this point have all happened off screen. When Gray kills the dog, you hear it. When oh. he kills the street singer, you well, you stop mm. hearing it. I mean, that's yeah. a great scene. This is the first time you see an on-screen death. And God, my heart just goes out to Lugosi this entire, like, oh, man, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the way he's playing it and that slow bringing him to the floor as he's putting his mouth, his hand over his mouth. So good. My, so creepy. In, in my household, we, we quote movies. And when I say my household, it's just me and my wife. But half of everything we say to each other is a movie quote. Like, that's how we speak to each other. And the funny thing is, is that all the things that we say from this movie is from that scene. And and they're all Lugosi lines. You know, we always say uh, Lissabon, you know, you know, know, when he says he's over from Lissabon. Uh, Then we we constantly say, you're saying we're going to steal the bodies together. Yeah. And then. I always say to her, like, uh, I don't understand, what is it, the song? Or, or when when Karloff starts singing, I don't right. understand. <laughs> all those different, all those funny different things. And it all comes from this. So here, I want to go back to the, real quick the thing about his name on there. If they bothered to second bill him, that says to me that at that time, they felt that the name was worth something to audiences. But they still won't give him anything to do. Right. It's yeah. like, it, it's like you're saying you're admitting that his name still carried some weight at the box office, but then you won't give him anything. Well, the trailer for this movie that's on the DVD, and I think it's one of those, it's a re-release trailer. So I don't know if it's the same as the original trailer, but the trailer makes it look like this is a Karloff Lugosi like team up movie. Yeah, like like they're going to team up and do horrible things. Uh, and they show the scene, you know, like we're going to sell the bodies together, you know, all that. Yeah, they, they, so, they, yeah. yeah they, they they show that again, you know, and then and it, it really, I mean, it really sells the movie <laughs> as mm-hmm. a total, you know, one half Karloff, one half Lugosi collaboration. Mm-hmm. So again, Hollywood knew that that sold tickets. So yeah. give the guy a better role, people. Come on, you know. <laughs> if if yeah. Derek was around and 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 went to this movie because of that trailer, imagine how horrible and mad he would have been to walk out and and, and Lugosi just had that tiny little role. Right, what do you Derek? mean, Bela Lugosi's in this movie? He's barely in the film. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I want my money back. You would have demanded your money back. I know you would. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have gone. Yeah, I would have said. I would have done something. <laughs> Gonna tweet this out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave a terrible review online. Yeah. Now, you know, we're talking a lot about Lugosi. I don't want to take anything away from the other performances. Karloff, again, 
Deller, you know, the, the scene where anytime he and, and McFarlane are talking, it's just, I mean, one of my favorite bits is when Dr. McFarlane tells him he's going to get hanged if he keeps coming around. It's like, I, I have no wish for a rope cravat. I never liked the smell of hemp. That, yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> that's a great line. Karloff's got a lot to do in this movie. That's so good. Yeah, he, he is, <laughs> I mean, he's, he is, every scene he's in, He's in total command of even even though uh, Henry Danielle is a fantastic actor. It's of course it's part of the movie that Gray is just lording everything over Toddy McFarlane. Which uh, the first thing I had to get past was Todd McFarlane because the comic book artist Todd McFarlane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, it's it's a tough one for me too. It's Todd McFarlane. Hey, <laughs> hey, for me, it's every time they mention the word, the title Resurrection Man, because I loved that comic oh, book, yes. man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. You could probably have a drinking game with this film that every time Gray says toddy, yeah. you, know, you, throw, you throw back a hot toddy. There you go. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Don't call me by that name. Yeah. <laughs> but then his... Uh, his secret wife, Meg, she calls him Toddy too a couple times. So I'm like, I'm so, but he just doesn't like it when Gray. And that's another thing. I mean, like, there's this whole other layer of McFarland that he, his, his servant is really his wife, but he can't. I guess because of her social status, he cannot say that that's his wife. I mean, that's another wrinkle that that again, it's not in the original story uh, that they crafted. I mean, it, it's. McFarlane is such a a complex character, and it's yeah. it's really strange because everybody else is so complex. Fetty's is just basically the innocent good guy who's being dragged into this nasty. I mean, he's he's got noble goals of being a doctor of of helping people, of saving people, and of course he's the one that's interested in helping the girl. But he's getting dragged into this dark underbelly of medicine, as they keep saying through the movie, medicine. Uh, you know, throughout throughout the film, and his character is very, in a lot of ways, one note, and I think that's on purpose. I don't, I don't think it's the fault of uh, of Russell Way, the actor. I think yeah. that's, you know, he is meant to be that way, to be like the innocent who's being corrupted by all these really nasty people. <laughs> but but uh, would you say that his character is the is the, is that our you know window into the film? I think so. Are we picture us as him getting swept up into the middle of this very, very dark goings on. I but it's, see that. it's a standard role, you know. I mean, it's a standard yeah. type of part and a standard, you know, type of role, and but an important one, you know. Obviously, it gives McFarland someone to talk to a, a lot of times, and he probably sees himself in Fetus, you know, a younger guy and being excited about about medicine. Yeah, I, I think so. I think Meg and, and Meg sees this pattern. She saw what happened to McFarlane. That's why she tells Fetty's get out, leave. And I love the line she has about basically that, like the dark abyss is going to swallow both of them because she has like this this second sight that her people, her Highland people have, you know, it's just like, Oh, is it Connor McLeod? I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it's the quickening Highlander, you know, but, uh, but anyway, she, uh, that's my bad Sean Connery impersonation. Uh, but, uh, but you know, she, she, she basically tells him, you know, get out. I know these guys, they're going to end up killing each other. It's going to happen. You know, she sees it. He's a good, innocent person. He's got a good soul. 
she sees what it's done to the man she loves, what's happened to him because he got in with Knox and Burke and Hare and Gray. And, you know, I think that's I think that's a really strong she's got actually got a really strong part for the few scenes she's in. And uh, Edith Atwater uh, that Plater does a really, really nice job with the role, too. Yeah. You know, we've touched upon it several times here. and, and, And if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this film, We've mentioned Burke and Hare and Knox and and all of that. And I didn't know this when I went into this film for the first time. You know, I had to start asking my my wife these questions and she knew the whole thing that this is there's this actual historical in the real world (laughs) level to this whole thing that the whole Dr. Knox and Burke and Hare thing was all real. And I find that another fascinating part of this movie is that it springs from a real-world event of body snatching, and that's such a clever story as this comes out of it. I didn't know about Burke and Hare either, and I, I know there's like several movies made on about them, and I have yet to actually see see any of them, but I'm interested. Is Peter Cushing in one that... My understanding, he's in a movie. Hmm, that I don't Burke know. In 1960, he appeared in a film called *The Flesh and the Fiends*, in which he actually played Robert Knox. Uh, oh wow! We gotta go. We gotta see that. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say if that movie didn't already exist, then somebody needed to make it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, directed by John Gilling, who did uh, *The Plague of the Zombies* for Hammer Films. Mm. So, Donald Pleasance plays Hare in the film. Oh my oh, gosh! Okay, I gotta oh. see this film, guys. <laughs> wow! Oh wow! I don't play. It's pure evil. Pure evil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So totally sidetracking here. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, overall, I, I loved this film. Uh, I really enjoy everything about it. You know, I'm, I'm a soundtrack guy, and I love the music. I love Roy Webb's music for all the Val Luton films. I feel like he's a composer we don't hear enough about. Uh, I wish there was more of his music available now on CD or at least somewhere online streaming. I'd download it and buy it in a second. You know, his music is so good. Uh, the, the cinematography is fantastic. The storytelling is on point. And, I mean, I, I'm with you, Jim, and I'm with you, Chris. This is Okay, you know, as of right now, this is my favorite Karloff role. I'll just say it flat out. Good man. Good man. We him over. You'll never be rid of him. <laughs> Can I still be you guys' friends now that I've admitted that? Come on. Yes. 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 I would love to see this movie get a proper like Blu-ray release. I'd love to see it cleaned up uh, and just to see the rich shadow work and the light work. Uh, the Cat People is available on Blu-ray, and it looks fantastic. Curse of the Cat People is coming out later this year on Blu-ray, and I'm sure that's going to look amazing. But I would love to see something like this turn up on blue. And with the Karloff and Lugosi name attached to it, I'm sure it would sell pretty well. I would love mm-hmm. to see that happen. I would love to see this uh, just on a big screen anywhere. I, I want to see more of this out there. Well, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? Based on a story by Robert Louis Stevenson, produced by Val Luton, directed by Robert Wise, and starring Karloff and Lugosi. I mean, what what more do you want, really? Right? Right. Compared to Isle of the Dead or Bedlam, where would you rank this one? Those are the other two Karloff films that he did with Val Luton. Oh, no contest. Yeah. Yeah. It's top. Yeah. I like it's it's Bedlam. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've seen Bedlam. I saw it once. Okay. You got to watch it just for Karloff's wig. (laughs) I liked Bedlam, but it's not, it's not the body snatcher. Yeah. No. Sure. And I love the heads. It's, 
All the Dead's got some really creepy, haunting thoughts about it. it makes makes you think. It's uh, you know like a lot of the Val, almost every Val Luton. It's, there's a psychological edge to it that most of your terror, horror, thriller films of the time didn't have. <laughs> and uh, I see, I hit everything right there. But I still got to pick Body Snatcher. Well, it's a solid film. And listeners, if we haven't convinced you to see this movie yet, I, I don't know what podcast you're listening to because this film's solid <laughs> from top to bottom, from beginning to end. I didn't want it to end. I, I wanted more time with Karloff. And of course, I would have loved more time with Lugosi just because he deserves more time. But overall, what what a fantastic film. And I'm so glad that both of you jumped on this. I'm like, man, we got to talk about this. I'm glad we made it happen, too. And I'm, I'm more than happy to get up at 6 a.m. to record with you guys about a movie like this. <laughs> well, well, wow. Thank you. <laughs> I, I know we've got to start wrapping up here. Jim, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, a couple of the books that you've been involved with. Yeah. What are some of the projects you want listeners to know about? Definitely um, the book that just came out, The Joy of Joe, which is uh, 30 essays uh, from uh, grown-up kids about playing with G.I. Joe. From 1964 up into the 90s, it's every era of G.I. Joe. You know, whether you like Real American Hero or the Adventure Team or even the Soldier Joe of the 60s, I think that you're going to find there's a common thread uh, of the of the pleasure and joy of playing with the toy that goes through it no matter uh, what the era. And we've got some uh, named people in the book. we got Paul Kupperberg and Fabian Nikiza and Jerry Ordway and uh, oh, wow. Dave West and Alan Porter and me. Uh, look it up. It's on Amazon, Kindle, and print. And, uh, of course, you know, I mentioned a couple of the other books, or at least one of the other books that I, I owe you a review on. But I also want to mention, again, Planet of the Apes Tales from the Forbidden Zone came out last year. If you're a fan of Planet of the Apes, you owe yourself this book. It is a collection of short stories all over the Planet of the Apes universe, different incarnations of Planet of the Apes. It's just a solid collection of amazing short stories that if you're a fan, you got to read, got to check that out. And I just want to throw that out there because it's one of my favorite Planet of the Apes things. Thank you. Thank you. And Chris, I mentioned the Supermates podcast. Well, Supermates is uh, still going on. Cindy and I have actually launched uh, JLU Cast, which we cover the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited animated series, uh, a whole story at a time, like when they were doing the two-part episodes. Uh, so we're doing that. In addition to Supermates and House of Frankenstein, will return in the fall. Of yes. Course. Uh, trying to whittle down the list of movies we're going to cover, and then I've got to find a corresponding comic, because that's what we do. We we cover a movie, and then we try to find a, a superhero comic where they encounter the monster or similar monster as uh, the movie we're covering. Uh, so we got that. Uh, yeah. I also do Superman Movie Minute with Rob Kelly, where we actually recently interviewed Richard Donner on our show, and I about fainted. Uh, wow. <laughs> so we talked wow. to Richard Donner uh, about uh, the movie he did after Superman, Inside Moves, uh, which is a fantastic film if you haven't seen that. That's uh, Superman Movie Minute. It's going to continue. We covered Superman, the movie. We're going to move on to Superman 2 next. I also do a Batman Nightcast with my friend Ryan Daly, where we cover the Batman comics in the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. Uh, so I'm all over fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can check me out there. Right on. You had me at Batman. <laughs> yes, I know. I, and I have heard Jim many times on John S. Drew's Batcave podcast, which I have been lucky enough to have been on a couple times myself. But uh, 
I know Jim. Jim's on there quite a bit and uh, covering the Green Hornets, and and yeah. I enjoy that a lot. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. And I've got to get to Amazon and get that GI Joe book because I love me some GI Joe, Real American Hero, and I've got some tragic tales of my own. I got to see what other people have to say. Oh, well, so. hey, well, if we, if I do a sequel, I got you on speed dial. Okay, cool. <laughs> Right on. Well, guys, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to everything you guys got going on, the podcast, uh, Jim's Amazon page. Highly recommended. Everything gets the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. I love chatting with you guys. I cannot wait to do it again in the future. I'm sure we can find something to talk about either together or just one-on-one with either one of you. Thanks for making the time to do this today, guys. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks, Dirt. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Chris. Of course, in the show notes, you're going to find links to the three podcasts that Chris Franklin is part of, the Supermates podcast, the Batman Nightcast, and the Superman Movie Minute. I'll make sure that there are links there alongside a link for you to pick up Jim Beard's G.I. Joe book. And by buying the book through that link, buying anything through any of the links you find on our website, we get a little bit of kickback, just a little bit. We're an Amazon affiliate, so it helps us out. I want to thank Jim and Chris for being part of the show and working with me to make the time to record. Sometimes when it comes to having multiple guests on, we have to fight different time zones. And as you heard, I got up pretty darn early. So I appreciate those two for being patient with me as I slowly made my way back to the land of the living, courtesy of several cups of coffee that morning. Also, that recording was done several weeks back. And at that point, I had yet to be separated from my employer. Don't worry, the Mechagodzilla bank that I used to have on my work desk. Yeah, I brought it home. I've got it here. Defilers of the dead. Vicious violators of the innocent. The fiendish ghouls. Two of history's most diabolic demons. Selling cadavers and corpses to the sinister Dr. Knox for his forbidden experiments. We heard you like them fresh, sir. This one's as fresh as a new-cut cabbage. Excellent. Excellent. I'll give you seven guineas. One, two... The Fiendish Ghouls. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! No one was safe from the bloodlust of these depraved grave robbers, these sadistic murderers. You killed
shock upon shock, terror upon terror, shatter the screen in the fiendish ghoul. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Be prepared for terror as the screen unleashes the greatest double, all-monster, earth-shaking shock show. Cronus and She-Devil. Cronus, the most horrifying monster of all time, sucking up the world's lifeblood and atomic energy to keep his fiendish world of outer space alive. And She-Devil, hell's most gorgeous demon. All that every woman wants to be. Supercharged. Super Chick, a swinging motion picture experience about a super kind of woman. Mistress of the martial arts with a black belt wrapped around her super body. Always in the middle of where the action is. Always ready for a new adventure. You can't afford to miss Super Chick. She's much more than you've ever had before. Derek and the Monster Kids, this is Jeff calling with a Weird Wednesday report. I recently went to Weird Wednesday and saw a movie called Super Chick. Uh, This movie only tangentially ties in with Monster Kids, and I'll get to that. Uh, Mainly, it's just a romp about this uh, sexually liberated woman. She's polyamorous, which means she has uh, multiple, not just lovers, but actual men that she loves. She's not quite on top of things because they don't know about each other, which isn't really fair to them. But, you know, overall it's not a bad theme. They tried to tie it together with this stupid mobster thing, wanting to use her job as an airline stewardess to rob somebody. That part was pretty lame. The one way it does tie into Monster Kingdom is she does go on a date, uh, kind of a blind date that she gets from a classified ad, since this is long before the internet. And it turns out, Frank the Suter is this aged monster movie guy. Uh, it turns out, unfortunately, to be a real creep. Uh, it would have been nicer if he had been nicer. Anyway, so that was Super Chick. It was fun. It wasn't great. And that was at the Joy Cinema. I also had the pleasure of seeing at the Joy Cinema the new movie Rampage with Dwayne Johnson. And I realized that's way too new for a typical monster movie, th- uh, monster kid thing. But it's got kaiju. I mean, it's got three giant monsters. And, man, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot better than I expected. So, it was great. I hope you enjoy it. 
So that's the first of the weird Wednesday reports from Jeff Polier. So Super Chick is the movie that he's talking about. This is not something that I was familiar with, so I had to go out and check it out myself. It's from 1973, so like he said, it's a little outside of the MTR Whalehouse, and the subject is a little outside of what we normally do here. However, there is that horror movie connection. You didn't mention it, Jeff, but the character you're referring to, the horror movie actor, his name is Igor Smith, and he's played by John Carradine. So there is your Monster Kid Radio connection right there. What did I think of the movie? Um, I felt like it was an example of maybe some of the more innocent exploitation fare of the time. Lots of nudity, but lighthearted. I don't know if that makes sense. So Jeff, why don't we do your second Weird Wednesday report? I'm just leaving the joy where I have seen the Milpitas Monster. And this was a lot of fun. It was a very low-budget film. According to IMDb, it was made by some students in Milpitas over a three-year period. The sensibility of the film reminded me of the films of Christopher R. Bim. Not as good a quality as Christopher does, but, you know, the same kind of low-budget sensibility. The only name in the cast is Paul Fries. He's the voice of the narrator. And if you look up Paul Fries, you know him from, like, narrating Breaking Bass things. It's a lot of voiceover work. In fact, the opening narration put me in the mind, wow, this sounds like it would be a kid's program. And not quite, you know, because there's an alcoholic who ends up getting killed. and Maybe not quite for kids. The monster itself is created by their garbage, by lightning, and it becomes, yeah, I think something has to be to be a kaiju, but this thing's pretty darn big. And really, it's only intentional crime is that it uh, goes through town eating everyone's garbage and taking their garbage cans and making a mess. Any damage it causes is really kind of accidental. And it's kind of a shame that they end up killing it, and since it's made of garbage, yep, they just take it back to the dump. Anyway, so that's the Milpitas Monster. You know, I think it's available on Amazon Prime. You can probably find it on YouTube. It's a fun way to spread an hour and a half. Well, I got you on the phone. I want to say congratulations, Derek, on your Lifetime Achievement Award. It's well-deserved. Good job, my friend. I hope you and everyone else is having a great week, and I'll talk to you again real soon. All right, now this is what I'm talking about. I love this movie. It's from 19, some places say 75, some places say 1976. But Jeff's right. It took a little while to get produced and, and completed. I enjoy this one a great deal, so much so that I've picked it up a couple of different ways on DVD over the years. I really feel like this is something that maybe somebody like, I'm not going to say something weird, but maybe uh, the AGFA, uh, the American Genre Film Archive, somebody like that should take this movie and give it a real nice prestige release. God Monster of Indian Flats just came out on Blu-ray, for example, and, and maybe something like that can be done with the Milpitas Monster. In fact, it might be an interesting double feature. The other name that I would mention when it comes to the Milpitas Monster, and up here in the Portland, Oregon area, probably doesn't mean nearly as much. However, there is somebody else in the cast, and people in California who grew up watching creature features will recognize Bob Wilkins, television personality, horror host, iconic and he's in the film. How cool is that? I'm a big fan of this one. I really wish I had made it out to Weird Wednesday to see this one on the big screen. Hope the crowd dug it. Sounds like you did, my friend. Thanks again, Jeff, for calling those in. And of course, anytime you want to call in a Weird Wednesday report, 
The floor will be yours. 50 feet tall, 20 tons of bestial fury on the rampage in a small American town. Explosive action. Can anything stop it? Not since King Kong has such a tale been told. The Milpitas Monster. It could only happen in Milpitas. Night falls on the great halls of Frenzywood. Chris and Jerry read this week's comics with a sense of terror and foreboding. Which books will they enjoy and which will unsettle them with an eerie mood striking into their very souls? They work their way through the rare and mysterious tomes to find those worthy of your attention. A knock comes to the door bringing something strange and otherworldly that no one has ever seen before. It's The Professor Frenzy Show! Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy Show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy Show. If you like indie comics and also like podcasts, please try The Professor Frenzy Show. Find the show in iTunes Search and Facebook. Episodes tweeted out on at Professor Frenzy on Twitter. Thank you. It's all new. The creature walks among us, more terrifying in human form. Striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. The creature walks among us. Horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. I have burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. The creature walks among us. The grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotions. Plus Merle Oberon, Lex Barker in The Price of Fear. Two great thrill pictures on one program. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? Thank you. 
the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for tagging along and making Monster Kid Radio part of your weekly podcast diet. I love talking about these movies with people and to have you kind of sitting back and enjoying the conversation that I'm having with my amazing guests. Well, just knowing that you're out there makes it even that much more worthwhile for me. I have so much fun producing Monster Kid Radio and talking about these movies with people. Thank you for making it possible for me to do what I do. I really appreciate it. Again, there will be links in the show notes to everything that we talked about here on the show. And this is also where you can find all of our contact information. I know I mentioned it a few times over the course of the episode. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is where you're going to be able to email us. But if you want to call us and leave us a voicemail, call me at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. We'll include you in a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Also on our website, we have links to everything from our Patreon page, which I'm going to be updating by the end of the month, beginning of August. Our Facebook page and our Facebook group, our Twitter account, everything that you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, it is right there waiting for you to uh, click on and, and explore and check out and have fun with. Also, you're going to find a link to the ballot for this year's Monster Rally Retro Awards, or as we call them around here, the rallies. If you haven't filled out your ballot yet, you still have until July 22nd to vote for Best Actor, Actress, Director, Movie, and Monster in genre films from the years 1934, 44, and 54. Now, because August is a theme month, the results of the rally voting won't be revealed until the beginning of September, but... I'm going to need the time to put everything together. So head over there, tinyurl.com slash rallies2018, or again, just hop over to our website and follow the link in the show notes. I mentioned YouTube a few times. I'm pretty proud of the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube channel. If you are a YouTube user, please consider subscribing to the Monster Kid Radio channel. I need to get 1,000 subscribers before we can take YouTube to the next step. So if you're on YouTube, help a brother out. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, I am cramming in as many recordings as I can between the gigs that I'm getting and looking for other work and filling out unemployment and that sort of thing. And because of that, I'm going to have like four recordings in the can between this week and next week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. And because of that, I can't tell you what's going to be on next week's show. I kind of want to play it by ear and wait until I get these recordings and see what happens. So I guess I'm just going to have to say... Stay tuned. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Surfogenic Fugue. That belongs to the really cool surf band Bamboogie Injections. Go check them out at bamboogieinjections.bandcamp.com and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Check out the entire album. All the songs are great. Thanks for listening. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 